Please open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Today we'll be looking at chapter 2. And as we do that, we'll introduce some things here to help us remember the incredible events of chapter 1. The truly remarkable had happened. On the face of this earth, the woman who was barren, whose womb had been closed by the Lord, gave birth to a son who would play the leading role in ushering in the Israelite monarchy. From his throne in heaven above, Almighty God was pleased to pour out his steadfast love upon this woman to whom he had pledged his covenant love. And through the hard years of working out his plan for her, the Lord was getting closer to raising up an earthly king who would point to the promised future Messiah, the anointed one. It's fitting that this woman's story introduces the book of 1 Samuel, and actually 2 Samuel as well. They used to be one. What an introduction to these events which bring the monarchy to Israel. Because God would first raise up her son, Samuel, a faithful man, to serve him as his prophet, priest, and judge in this interim period. In chapter 2, the woman's heart now literally bursts forth in a magnificent, prayer of praise. This prayer is quite the contrast to the one we saw in chapter 1, in which she was, quote, deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, pouring out her soul before the Lord, speaking out of her great anxiety. In her first prayer, crying out to the Lord, she had made a vow to give the son she asked God for back to the Lord to serve God as his priest as long as he should live. And now in her prayer of praise, God has given her the son and she has faithfully and gladly kept her vow. She has delivered him to Eli the priest at the tabernacle in Shiloh. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 and 10 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord, My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And Hannah's prayer, which many call a song because it was most probably observed and sung by the people of God. This prayer can be divided into three sections, which are like three big windows into her heart, each one helping us understand how well she knew God and loved Him and was committed to His purposes. First, we see Hannah beginning with her own remarkable experience, and that's as far as we're going to get today, verses 1 through 3. The second part begins in verse 4 and goes through verse 8. And in this part, she sees that the way God delivers her, has delivered her, is characteristic of the way that he rules his world. And thirdly, in verses 9 and 10, she sets up, ends up recognizing what it will be like when God fully and completely and visibly rules. This is quite a progression. Many of us, when we pray, even after God works in mighty ways, like he's just done here, we get distracted before we end up with the first or second sentence. But you notice what she has done here in this prayer. First she sees what God has done in her experience, and then she recognizes that this is, the God she knows, and it's how God works in the world that he reigns over, which in he will finally return in glory. It may take a few weeks, as I just noted, to get through these three sections, but I think we would be richly blessed as we see each one. You know, it is obvious, is it not, that this woman did know 
capital K-N-O-W, the Lord. She knew the Lord God Almighty. And remember, when you see the Lord here in the text, and it's all capital letters, it's the word Yahweh, God's personal name for his covenant people. Can we grow in our knowledge of God by seeing how she prayed here and what she prayed here and why she prayed here? Well, the answer should be obvious, yes. The big picture of this prayer is really important to keep in our minds. Hannah's relief, if you want to call it that, is a sample of the way that God works. It's also a sample of the way that he will work when he brings in his kingdom in its fullness, which we see here at the end in verses 9 and 10. So the saving help that God gave Hannah is a foretaste. It's a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God. Or a down payment of the full deliverance that each of his people can look forward to and have a sure hope in. So do you see what God is doing here through one of his people in having this prayer in his word? It's meant to encourage us as we face all sorts of stuff in this life of what will happen. And he gives us samples and little bits every once in a while of encouragement and taste of what will happen by the way he works something out now. But this isn't then. So everything is not going to be, quote, hunky-dory now. But we see evidences of it many, many many times in many ways. And this has got to be one of the greatest um, experiences in the whole Bible as far as stories go of the work of God and what he is really like. So let's look at Hannah's experience today in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord, My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The first thing Hannah does here is express her thanksgiving and praise to God for what he's done. And notice that she doesn't just say over and over and over and over again, I praise the Lord, I praise the Lord, I praise the Lord, I praise the Lord, which is a wonderful thing to say. It's a wonderful thing to sing. But do you see what's different? She tells us how and what she is praising God for. And she expresses her thanksgiving and praise by speaking of three things. Her heart, her horn, don't get the wrong idea there, we'll explain it, and her mouth. My heart exults in the Lord, which is quite the opposite of the sad heart that we saw in chapter 1 that her husband Elkanah recognized and asked her about and was troubled over. 
Exult literally means jumping for joy. The deliverance was so complete and so overwhelming. There are sports examples, and they fall so short. But this is a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth inning times about a million what happened to her. The deliverance was so complete and it was so overwhelming. Next she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. And some English translations have tried to uh, describe what this is because the word is so different to us. And so they say something like strength. And some of the translations have put horn back in um, which I think is a plus. Why? Because horn pictures the way a beast holds its head and its horns high as a symbol of what? Losing? Despair? Exactly the opposite. Of victory and power over. Hannah is saying it this way to refer to the removal of of her disgrace of being barren and childless and being ridiculed in her own family setting. She can hold her head high now because of what the Lord has done for her. Notice that each of these three things, um, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice rejoice in your salvation, O Lord. And we don't want to miss the most important part of those phrases. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now in our culture right now, this is taken um, a new way. It's an art form that's not good art. Because it's so arrogant. And that is not what this is talking about here. That is not how we should look at this. Derides here, this Hebrew literally means a mouth that is open wide. And so it has the idea of devouring one's foes. But is Hannah expressing vengefulness here towards Penina who had ridiculed her so badly and treated her like dirt? No, this is not a vengeful attitude, and it's not a bitter attitude towards Penina, her rival and her persecutor. Instead, Hannah sees Penina as an example of the enemies of God and his people. She's taken this to a completely different level and seen the bigger picture of God ruling and defeating his enemies. So she's expressing her joy at the way God has silenced all the mocking and he's done so by his grace. And this is how she wanted to express her experience. Three simple ways 
but they all point to God's power and grace in delivering her from this particular situation. Notice as we go through this, as we've already expressed, and we'll hear it many more times, she doesn't just focus on her experience, which was incredible. She goes beyond it to get the bigger picture. That's where her heart really is. So what does Hannah say her experience has been of God's work? Her heart's gone from intense grief and sadness to exulting in the Lord, what he has done. Her disgrace has been removed and she sees the victory as being in the Lord, what he has done. Her silent, painful suffering is no more. She can express what God has done. Why? Because she rejoices at God's deliverance. Here she says, in his salvation. But what we're finding out more and more about Hannah is what she is most deeply thankful for. There's something behind all this. There's something underneath all this. There's something more important than even all this. And it is that she really knows God and has been accepted into his steadfast care. Those of you that were in Sunday school, we ended with a question. Why does God want us to serve like he served us. How and why is Christ central to the details of our lives? Well, what about Hannah? Did she get this? Yes, she got it. And we see evidence of it here, big time. She goes on in verse 2 to pray, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Remember, she's praying to the Lord. There is no rock like our God. I think we just sang that. This is actually a short confession of faith. You want a short one? This is a good one. She's confessing what she knows is true and believes about God. So, is this coming from someone who knows things about God? Or from someone who really does know Him? Well, that answer should be a little obvious by now. This is a picture of the faith that comes from knowing, really knowing. Knowing God is who and what he claims to be. Not just facts about him, but actually knowing that he is who and what he claims to be. Hannah is not evaluating God on the basis of how much her life, how much of her life has been what she wanted it to be. Well, my life is this way or that way, therefore God must not be who he really says he is. 
uh, except for this one time. Or whether God has blessed her and given her everything she wanted. Isn't that what we do all the time? We get bent out of shape. We get angry at God. We get our feelings hurt because God hasn't done for us exactly what we think he should do for us. Which tells us that we don't really know him very well. And he uses those situations to drive us to his throne of grace to reconsider, does he really care, love, rule? That's the underlying lesson of this whole book. Because when we take matters into our own hands, we need to read the end of verse 9, which we'll get to eventually. But look, this is the primary lesson of First and Second Samuel. For not by might shall a man prevail. What would you add right after that that is proven throughout the whole Bible, but especially in First and Second Samuel? Not by the might, by might shall a man prevail, but by whose might? The Lord's might. And that's her heart. That's what she knows about God. She has learned about God from the depths of her hurting. Let me say that again. She has learned about God from the depths of her hurting. And for all you positive thinkers out there where the glass is always half full, you could say, well, thank you, God, for my hurting because I'm getting to know you better. For all of you half-empty people, he's saying, learn to think that way because you will get to know me so much deeper in so many ways through the hurting as I show you my purposes or I show you my faithfulness or whatever he is doing with you in particular. Now, how can we say this about her? Because she knew him well enough to go to him in that hurting. Instead of what? Instead of running to what the world offers as relief and comfort. She had not hosed lost hope in the Lord. Now just think about this for just a second. I'm going to throw out one Old Testament example. We also know a uh, previous couple who was promised a child. Several times. It didn't happen in normal time frame. And Sarah hatched up a plan of her own might that her husband went along with. Hannah, the time frame is a lot shorter, so we, we're not saying, you know, one is tougher, whatever. We don't know that. 
But do you see the, at least the difference in our hurting and despair and ridicule? She went to the Lord in her hurting. She didn't hatch her own plan. And we need to get something through our thick skulls. Those of you out there know that I'm primarily speaking about me. Her prayer in chapter 1 came from a heart that desired most of all to see her Lord magnified in the world that she lived in. And what kind of world was that? Do not forget this. A world which, remember, was saturated with idolatry and rebellion and people doing whatever they wanted to do. The period of the judges. This is right at the end of that period. It was horrible. Remember, Eli the priest, when he saw Hannah praying in the tabernacle, thought she was drunk. Not because it was so rare, but because it was normal. Yes, she wanted a son. And to be rid of the derision of being mocked for being childless, which in that culture was even more grave a situation than now. But underneath all that was a heart that wanted a son whom she could gladly give back to God for lifelong faithful service to the Lord God Almighty. That was what was so weighty. A son that God may use to bring what? Worship and praise back to the only one deserving of that worship and praise. Do you see the difference between wanting a child for all the blessings that God gives that way? Do you see that as being good? But not quite the same as Hannah's desire to have a child that God would use to make a difference in the ratty world that she was living in that despised the God that had delivered them from Egypt and made them a people. See, that is a much deeper burden. It's a much deeper desire. It shows a much deeper love of God in knowing what his ultimate purposes are. That's why this lady's special. And knowing this helps us understand why she says what she does in this confession of faith here in verse 2. And what's the main thing that she says she knows? Is this what you would put first in a confession of faith? There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. Do you and I rely on God's holiness when we are desperate for help? Most of us are going, what? Where's the connection with that? Why can that be so enlightening? Well, listen up. Because this can rock your world. Because it's God's holiness that comforts and encourages us in every situation. Why? Because His holiness includes His moral 
perfection. His moral perfection comforts and encourages us. Why? Because we then know that all his intentions for his people are holy. All of them. It is not possible for God's motives to be perverse or callous or mean, even in judgment and especially towards his beloved people. And I bet if I ask you to raise your hand, if that's one of the big lessons you're learning in life, most everybody in here who knows God would raise their hand and go, I'm still trying to figure this one out. But this is what we can rely on. Is Hannah joyous now just because her request was granted? This is what a lot of people just, they can't get over this question. She's just praying this now because God gave her this kid. What about all the years of her disappointment? Well, let's think about this a little. Only now, when her prayer had been answered, can Hannah begin to really understand and see God's holy purpose in her trials. It took a while. We don't like the word a while. We like the word now, immediately, I demand it. It's my right. I will not serve you unless you tell me now what in the world is going on. She says God is holy, which means his motives are completely pure. His intentions for you are for your ultimate good. So how does that change how you're thinking and feeling? It should change them a lot. Because you can wait on someone you trust. If you do not trust them, you're constantly wanting to know what their motives are, why they did this. You, you're bitter, and that's the way all of us work. Someone you trust, you can wait on them. Who can we trust more than the Lord God Almighty? who sent his own son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. This is an incredible, what does she say next? Rock that we can stand on, that we can hide behind, that we can run to. Only now can she begin to see more of what God was doing in her. And only now can she get a glimpse of of God's possible long-range purposes, which he did not lay out for her at the beginning. That is, that's nowhere said. In all those years of torment, all those things remain relatively unclear and unexplained. But did she still know during all that that God was holy and pure and good? Yes. But... Did she demand that God answer the way that she wanted? No. 
Did she require God to act on her time schedule? No. But did she still pour out her heart to the Lord? Yes. We can run to the Lord and pour it out as long as we know he is good and holy and trust him with it. That's the lesson of life, period, for the believer. We've already seen in chapter 1 that she was driven by these rough circumstances, by the mockery, by the constant torment from Penina to take her need to the Lord and only to the Lord because as she prays, there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you feel like jumping for joy and celebrating with her? Yes, we should. Remember, her prayer was accompanied by the great desire of her heart to see God glorified in and through it all, no matter what ended up happening. So she took a vow to give her son, the son that she asked for, back to God for a lifetime of serving him, and this is what tells us where her heart really was in all this. See, this is the window that opens up that lets us see what her real motives were. Yes, she wanted a child badly, but she wanted God to be glorified more. And if God had had some other plan for her that worked out some other way, as long as God was glorified, she would be exulting the same way. Why? Because she knew God. Do we know God this way? The bottom line for us here is that if we place a higher value on the blessings that God gives instead of on God himself, we commit idolatry. That's the bottom line. And idolatry is esteeming the creature above the creator. Verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So the first of these three sections of these ten verses of prayer here ends with an admonition or a rebuke. This is not specifically aimed just at Penina, because all the verbs here are plural, and your is a plural. But for anyone who thinks they only need to rely on themselves is who it's aimed at. And can we venture to say that all of us have this issue? Yes, we do. And who usually are way too ready to tell you about how they can do that, these people that rely on themselves. True? Two commentators write this, the wicked and arrogant should realize that God sees and knows all things and he knows how to respond to them all. 
His eye is on every plot hatched in the darkness. He knows the faithful servants are, what they aim at, what they suffer, what a strain is often put on their fidelity. You see, God has a response calculated by his infinite wisdom for every situation. God acts and permits actions in accordance with his perfect knowledge of past, present, and future, always achieving his sovereign will for his own glory and the highest good of his people. So do we understand what made Hannah tick? What was the source of her humble steadfastness when under great trial? What enabled her to offer her treasured son for a lifelong service in the temple tabernacle to the Lord? What caused her to praise God here with such beauty and power? By the way, you notice any similarities with this prayer to somebody in the New Testament named Mary? Read them both together. Hannah was absorbed with the Lord. There's no other way to say it. Totally absorbed with the Lord. Her heart was filled with the knowledge of God. Her faith anchored on the glorious perfections of God's character and his attributes. Sounds like another verse, actually many, in the Old Testament. Most of you will recognize this one. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's the message. Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices, practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. And the example that Christ gave us is himself. And he left us with a supper that we are told to take together as believers in Christ on a regular basis. Why? To remind us of exactly these things about who he is. Why? Because we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. This meal that, that we want to take is for everyone in here this morning who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and we would invite you to participate, exulting in who your Savior is, These elements are signs and seals of the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. This is also not just to remember, but it's something we do together to participate in what God's doing in our hearts through the word of God and his indwelling spirit because we are in Christ if we know him. If you're not a believer here this morning, please do not partake 
of these elements, we ask that you would consider the gospel. Your need for a Savior that God gave to us because you cannot get there on your own. Christ has already accomplished all that was necessary for you to be forgiven and accepted and accepted by him. So when we see and handle and taste the bread and the cup, it reminds and assures us of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Can we exult in who God is? Is God lifted up? Is is his character and his perfections clear enough that we can take this meal as individuals but also take it realizing that we're all here and if we're in Christ we will be spending eternity together never bored learning more and more about the glory of the one who had this plan of redemption for a people that he chose to save before the foundation of the world, before we were ever here. So that we could learn more and more about how glorious, about how holy, about how just, about how faithful all of his attributes would be gloried in together. And this is, well, maybe it is a pun on purpose. This is a foretaste of the future. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on on himself. This church he was writing to had a problem of just doing this, going through the motions and eating too much and drinking too much and not thinking too much about Christ being central and what is and who is being pointed to here. If you know Christ, I urge you to participate. A sign points to something real. It's a seal because it confirms as we take this together that he really is the Lord God Almighty. His son sent to save. Washing us clean from our sins. Making us new. New hearts. He has a place prepared before, for us forever. Would our men please come forward? and help pass out the elements.